My maternal grandfather was Victoria's first overseas agent. And at the age of 10, both my maternal and paternal grandfather were people with a great sense of integrity. In those days, we were all born poor and he worked and became, he started off doing wood cutting. He was told that he, he's by his teacher who was telling of overseas experiences and said, of course, none of you will ever do what I did. And Grandpa took that as a challenge, I think. Um, you're confusing me completely. But he was a man with a great sense of service. The Victorian government asked him to go overseas and represent them in America and Brazil and somewhere else with the prospect of perhaps being able to trade with those countries later on. And he was such a success that when he came back, he was appointed permanently as Victoria's first agent general. Wow. They didn't call them agent generals then. My mother was 10 when she left home. They were over there for 10 years and Grandma had another child while she was over there as their son. And... Um, he stayed there, but the children were getting the English pneumonias and things because of the cold climate. And they came back to Australia while he stayed over there, Grandpa stayed over there. So my mum always had that marvellous um, sense of belonging and belonging at a high social level. She went to a private school in England and was appalled with the way the teachers spoke to some of the poorer students and got herself into trouble for always sticking up for them. Grandma used to feed the neighbours' maids, everybody had maids, she used to let them climb the fence and come in and give them the key to her pantry so they could get something, full stomachs and so forth. So there was that sort of example. Yes, and Grandpa often used to take her if Grandma wasn't well enough to go to official occasions. And um, my mother used to tell us a story of him taking the three girls um, to see Queen Victoria and Queen Victoria climbing into her carriage and she had a diamond studded handle on her umbrella. He also pointed out that man in that coat, cape, which was draped, Mum said, over the hindquarters of the horses he rode. My grandfather said, take note of that man. He will cause tremendous problems in this world. It was the Kaiser. She remembered all those and used to tell us these stories. Now, then she grew up in Morven, in Melbourne, the family, and to the same church went my father as a single bloke. And they lived in the same suburb and saw each other. My father wanted to become a minister, but he came from a very poor family whose and his, his mother had kicked out her husband, who was an alcoholic, and she brought up seven children on her own. They all achieved. They were all achievers. My father wanted to become a minister of religion in the Presbyterian Church, 
He went back to Scots School when he was 23, Scots College, when he was 23 to do Hebrew and Greek, the languages he had to have. And he ran out of money. And then at a public meeting when which the church called looking for people to go to the outback to help the existing Presbyterian ministers who were very scattered around the, you know, very few of them. And Dad volunteered to go for five years without any pay. He wasn't paid, his expenses were paid. After being, he had a horse and buggy, which I can show you a picture of. Um, and he inherited those from a Presbyterian minister who had gone to Port Augusta and was known as, um, can't think of the name of the inland, um, before John Flynn. And he volunteered to go for five years and the church promised that because he was within touch of finishing his ministerial studies, he became an honorary minister whom all the locals called the Padre. And he, for five years, travelled to parish of 16,000 square miles from the Flinders Ranges up to Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory. And he, um, when he went up the Birdsville track the first time with the horses and buggy, one of his parishioners said, what you need in this country is camels. So he bought a string of camels and then got half-caste boy who became his camel boy and the church paid him five shillings a month but he went into the bank and he was not allowed to use the money without special permission. Now Dad stayed in 1917, from 1912 to 1917 and he travelled that whole area wherever there were white people that might need his services. He didn't attempt to change the view of the Aborigines because they had their own interests and also the Lutheran church was already in there and he didn't want to cross it, what they were doing. And you may have heard of Hermannsburg Mission. Well, the Germans started that. So he was sent to Beltana and he, um, when he got his camels, he moved to Udnadatta. And the kids used to, and he used to teach the children during his circuit. He would take library books and magazines. He'd take toys for the kids. He always had something for them. But at each place there were children, he would give them school lessons. Yep. And next time he would come back, which might be months later, he would correct those school lessons and so forth. Well, eventually he sent Mum a telegram from Tennant Creek to say, set the wedding date, I'm on my way home. So Shane was out completely in, in that statement. He was out in that statement. Do you think that's where your love of the outback, is that where it comes from, your dad? It comes from my dad and I can remember saying to my mother, I'm going to go take a, week's, um, a month's leave from work where your holiday was two weeks. And I saved up until I had four weeks. And I said to your mum, I'm either going to go and get on a cargo boat and travel around the islands or I will go to the territory. I said, I am so tired of Dad boring all our visitors within the territory, the territory, the territory. It was his life 
And I said, I will go back and tell him the colours are the same as they are down south. The people are the same. What on earth are you going on about? Instead of which, I found the colours were not the same. The people were not the same. It was a different world. I was met by so many people that had been visited my when they were children by my father and they all welcomed me. They were giving me fruit to take down back home to my father. They were so grateful to him. They all remembered there was this great affection and here I thought everybody was bored to tears with what Dad had to say. From that, that was in 1950, was my first trip up there. Dad was at Spencer Street Station with my mother and one of my brothers, my brother Hugh, who'd been up in the territory with the army during the, the war training, training soldiers. And I went every year after that. So did you go by yourself in 1950? Yes. Or you went up to see Hugh? No, no. No, Hugh wasn't there. So was that Everyone was home. a young chit of a girl to go and do that by herself? No, but there again, when you read that, I had three older brothers. Yes. They knew I was a different species and had to be nurtured, but I was the fourth boy. I didn't play with dolls. I did what my brothers did. And when I said, I can't do that, they'd say, there's no word, there's no such word as can't. Mm -hmm. If you want to do it, you will find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And that was their tremendous influence on me. I've always been a loner because I was the fourth boy of a family who happened to be a girl. So that I was brought up with that mentality, you can do what you want to do, but you've got to be honest. You, we're a very poor family because Dad had a physical breakdown when he came back from the territory and he was in bed virtually for several years. And my eldest brother and, my, and our doctor were the ones that kept telling Dad, you can do this. And they used to half carry him down into a separate um, room we had from the house, which we called the playhouse, and he'd sit in there and his hand was so crippled with arthritis that he had to pick up his pen and close his fingers around his pen to write a few words and then stop. It was our doctor that said, why don't you put on paper all these things you were telling me? Mm. And so he wrote three books. Ah, the three books, yes, excellent. He wrote an handful in the day. Now what you do when you tell somebody something you've been doing, you tell them what happened now and then you go back. The first book was such a success, it went into seven editions of. Publishers wanted another book and he wrote Camel Page, which was one book back. And then he wrote um, um, The Boundary Rider, which was his first experiences. The Boundary Rider was his, 
his experiences with the horse and buggy when he started horses and buggy when he so started. So it was the first one, the yeah. first experience, sorry, he wrote about first. And so that is... And then he swapped over to the camels and he got his black boy Dick Gillen and all Dick's letters to me I have put in the National Library. And then they went back for the opening of the John Flynn Church. And that was Mum's first trip up there. And then I put to, I tried to get Angus and Robinson to reprint his books and they wouldn't. And so I decided to um, to select stories. Now that was the wrong thing to do. It hasn't got the continuity. He also never referred to himself and the first person in his writing was always the Padre. Ah. And I said, I put it into first, first person and I selected what I thought were the best stories and that wasn't the way to go. Do you think you should have kept it in the third person as well? Or no. are you happy about it? No, I'm happy first. about the personal yes. thing. Yes. But it's the fact that I limited the number of stories and would you believe I showed it to a, a printer in a publisher in Wangaratta. Mm. She said I was there when the man from Evenadatta came into Angus and Robertson and I had a hand in its printing. <gasps> so she said, she just looked and said it's got to be published. What a wonderful achievement. That was the guy from the Melbourne Zoo that was taking a camel to Melbourne to go into the zoo. And he came to my father because we had a saltbush hedge in Bendigo. We lived there. And he came there because the camel, his camel could have saltbush to eat. Uh-huh. <laughs> they are very precious, aren't they? Look at To me they are. Yeah, I think they're a precious historical artefact, actually. But to you they are, yeah, most importantly. There's Dad with his horses and buggy. Huh. The Padre and his team. Mm. <laughs> and then, of course, he swapped over to the camels, which was the right thing. And the kids, when he was the kids... Out in the outback, when they saw him coming, would be going running into their bed. Here comes a man from Ebenezer. It was easy to say than here comes Mr. Bruce Plowman. Or... the words you said about yourself you've always st stood your own path or well yes um i think for myself i don't always think within the square and i'm prepared to stand up and speak out and do you think that you have has that been have have you come across people who are prepared to speak out are rare no, they're not. No, they seem rare. Pam Pam Stone. Yep. Is one that used to. Um, Betty McLean was our most independent. Betty started our um, refuges, women's refuges. Yeah, right. Yeah. So all of these women, all of you women, kind of are these amazing. People speaking out. Well, we you. were quite a threesome. Right. Betty, Betty McLean, Pam Stone and me. And the men treated Pam so badly. They promised her the mayor's job. 
she turned up and her daughter came to see a man became Pam went into the women's toilet, which was next to the men's toilet, and the men were in there saying, we can't have a woman as mayor. Unless you will have to do it, and this voice was elected mayor. And I had made Pam a mural chain out of toffees in gold paper. How, how humiliating for her. But she was a good mayor. So... She didn't become mayor that time. Did no. Did she become mayor yeah. next time? Her husband had been mayor, the mayor. Mm. He was our last child president, our first mayor. Mm. So would you, um, when I say the word, like, um, have you, do you see yourself as like a feminist? No. What do you think of that term? No. I just can't understand why people don't speak out. It's not whether you're male or female. It's mm. what is right, wrong and different. Can I make a difference? Mm. Mm. Have you ever faced your own difficulties because of speaking out? Oh, even yes. One was a, um, a woman who phoned me and really ticked me off and how dare I take a job that her daughter wanted. Mm. Now, at that time, I was swallowing my husband's income. I had to go to work mm. to keep the family, help keep the... And he never, that's Chaz, he never, ever complained. He fought for me too. So... That's right. It would be good for people to, to hear because there's always that narrative that, um, you know, amazing women who went out to work early, um, there's often a narrative, you, you'd know with all your his, his, history, that they were exceptional people. But from my interviews and everything, they're actually people that needed to go out and work. They didn't do it to be exceptional. They did it because... You, you needed the money. I, I, like, was, needed the money. I was following our income. We bought a house here. We moved in three days before Christmases. We wanted a weatherboard house. We looked at all we, we looked at here, and this is the only one we didn't have to turn a torch on to walk into. And it was the only one within our limits of mortgage. Mm -hmm. And I had to help Chaz pay the mortgage off. He didn't want me to go to work if I didn't want to go to work. It was me who said, I've simply got to do something about this. And I had started working part-time as a journalist in um, Benalla. Yeah. Mm. Yes, at the Benalla Ensign. Yes. Is that right? And they were marvellous to me. And then they started, They put me through a cadetship without me even realising. To start off with, I was doing the social page. For the border mail, I was doing the social page. Mrs So-and-so's gone on holidays to socials for three weeks and that sort of thing. But Benalla, Jack O'Shea and his two sisters ran the paper. And Jack would ring up and she'd get down to the courthouse and say, you know, I want you to particularly cover this case or that case or what have you. And I can remember on one occasion the magistrate saying, the court reporter has got a query on what was said. I notice we have a shorthand writer. Would you please read that back? And my shorthand was Jean Woodley's shorthand based on Bidman a long time ago. And I could hardly read it, you know, thinking, I don't think I could do this, but I was still up and read it, which was good. And another time when a guy came over and said, don't worry about taking the, about transcribing your notes, he said, I know Jack. He said, no, I don't want that published. And I thought, I nearly stopped taking notes. And I thought, no, he told me that. That wasn't my boss telling me that. So I was a bit desultory in it. And I went back and said to Jack, and he said, he said that to you? And I said, yes. He said, all you've got, every word you've got, front page story. And that's another thing about integrity.
and they're beautiful to get. There's one area out of Morgan that I took my my son and I were talking about it recently, and I said to him, "Now look for shells, because once the sea came through here, we were always interested in geology. The sea came through here, and there would be shells here, and I said, "Look, there's one, there's one." He said, "Mom." And I go over, and there would be at least as high as the bottom rail of that picture, mm. solid shells. You're going right. But I can't speak too highly of Colin Colonel Colonel Brewer, and um, Major Don Southall, and what they did to help me with those unimogs. They trusted me, and it, and and survey maps. Uh, which were absolutely invaluable with every creek and every sand hill and marvellous. There was nothing much to tell you. They were the most marvellous organisation and I still have a tremendous regard for them. Yeah. When I came here, I had to work, as I said yeah. to you, and I got a casual job. We had two children that were just starting primary school. My husband was a, a, a teacher. So one of us was always here when they left and one of us was always here when they came home. Chas was absolutely marvellous. So I could only work part-time and I got a job with the border mail and I was doing 12 councils on both sides of the border once a month. Uh, Once a month was almost every day of the week when you do 12. up into the River Marina, over to Corowa, um, yeah. So you were the council? I was doing, yes, I was, and and I did help them with magazines and that, you know, special publications and things. And then uh, the ABC was looking for a news typist. Now, that suited me. I could type 100 words, 120 words a minute, no problem. And it was mostly taking copy off the phone and then typing it into news stories. We had our own journalists and they would um, they'd put the stories together. And then I was there for 20 years. Um, oh, and that, that part-time developed yes. into permanent. And because I had done journalism at... Banella and also the Border Mail, I was also doing some for them. Then uh, their Wodonga correspondent, as they had called them, left and Jeff said he think he could manage it. And I said, yeah, no problems. I'd sit at my desk at night, do most of that. And um, councils like Tulangato and Corowa, Places that I had, Myrtleford, that I had been to for the Border Mail as a daytime reporter, contacted me and said, would you still do it for us? And I said, well, I can't come out doing business hours. And they'd post me their agendas. So I had several councils who would post me the agendas and then I'd pick out where there might be stories. And they had good news senses anyway. And um, and so that was great help, and I'll do those at night. On this, on this typewriter? Oh, I had five typewriters. <laughs> My brother gave me an electric one. I couldn't use it, so you can imagine I've got a computer out there and never look at it. I can't I cope. I was going to ask if you had a computer. Can't yeah. cope with it.
And I had very clever brothers. My eldest brother, Bruce, um, couldn't get his amateur radio operator's licence until he was 18. But at 17, he made the first ECG machine, machine Australia. He didn't invent it. Our doctor said to him, look, I need some help. Heart is, the heart is a very difficult um, organ to read and I need to be able to see the beat of the heart. Do you think he could do anything? He said, I've got a friend in America and they're experimenting with it. I'll get him to send you some stuff. And from what the, the guy sent him and um, his own brilliant mind, my brother made the first ECG electrocardiogram in Australia. And the doctor gave it, uh, he gave it to the doctor, he said, I'm absolutely wrapped, that's absolutely marvellous. But I also need, and and so Bruce went further with that. He also invented, during bushfires, he had to go out into bushfires with his radio gear, and at that time, I think the 39 fires were of war, and a friend said, will you come with me? He, he was a fire officer. And he said, will you come with me and bring your radio gear? And Bruce said, as fast as you put up an aerial, it was getting burnt. And he wondered if he could make an aerial by winding it. And he did the UHFs to see on cars. And he never... He never, ever patented either of them. With the, um, he gave the UHF to the bushfire brigades. They didn't want it. And then there was an American walking down the street with America at night with his wife and another couple. And there was a fire truck over the road and the fire truck came. And he said, you strangers here? And Bruce said, yes. He said, you're walking in a very hairy, bad area here. Okay, down three blocks, okay, two blocks with this area. He said, I advise you to get out of here as soon as you can. And he said, you're Australian? And Bruce said, yes, and I notice you've got a UHF. Yeah, he said, a bloke in Australia invented that. He said, you must come into the museum and have a look at it. And Bruce said, yeah, I'll do that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> what a great story. Um, and since then, that museum has been destroyed. They had written to him about it from America. He put an article in a radio uh, magazine in, in Australia and um, a copy had found its way to America and they contacted him. Him and he made one and sent it over to them, and that's yeah. how they had that one. That is a great story, isn't it? Great, <laughs> but that's the sort of brothers I had. Yeah. So you've been, you've just had all of these great influences. Oh, absolutely. And you said your husband, um, Chaz, was very good with the children when, when oh, we were both working. Cause he was such a lovely man. He's a gentle guy. He was as a, that's his citizen of the year. Oh, that's him. What did Chaz win his outstanding services to the community in Wodonga? Oh, he was just a marvellous teacher, marvellous with kids. Um, our backyard every Saturday morning was crowded with kids wanting to go shooting with him. He was a keen sports shooter. And he said one day, you kids have got to stop and think. Now listen to me and I'll give you a lesson about getting through a fence with a loaded gun. And that gave him the idea. The kids were so interested and next week they'd bring more kids with them. You know, we had after school in the background. He was a Mr Chips sort of thing to the kids. And, um, and he decided to teach safety with firearms. 
And so he went to the principal of the school who was also a shooter. And he said, yeah, I reckon that'll fit in. Now we'll have to have permission of the police. Chase went to the police, he went to the politicians and he got approval all the way through and started that. And it's only COVID that has stopped them in the last couple of years. Went all around Australia. And um, when we came here, he started in Albury. Uh, at least he didn't start in Albury. The kids of Albury asked him to go over there and teach them too. And really, he was a tremendous person. He got his community award because of all he was always doing in Wodonga. Now, if you want to make notes, he was a member of the Lions Club. He would have put together every year at Christmas at least a 100 um, hampers, Christmas hampers. Um, the Lions Club asked to have an, a street name for him and instead the council named Whitler Park in West Wodonga. It's a small area. They've got parks all over the place. And that was because of his community services. He also was awarded a British Empire Medal that was the forerunner to the Orders of Australia. He refurbished the guide hall. He was a marvellous worker for the guides and the scouts. He was a life member of the Field and Game Association. He was great on conservation. Chas was great all round. The people looked up to him. There was a guy named, oh no, I won't give his name. One one night in, we, when we were living in Benalla, there was a ring at the front door at 10 o'clock at night and it was a former student who came and said, I'm on my way home, I have just received my degree and I would never have done that if it hadn't been for the example that you set me of good citizenship and the importance of education. So the jazz was a special person and I just skipped over it by talking about his shooting. <laughs> yes, our yard every Saturday morning was filled with kids, but that was the sort of person he was. Uh, he was a great mentor. And talking about the technical skills is another one of me, and you can't. Um, my brother gave, this is for well before I was married, my brother Bruce, the one that was the inventor, gave me a little old Austin coupe yeah. and said, now go and learn to look after it. And I thought, where can I go? And I went to the tech school and said, you've got a night class to teach people how to look after cars, which is only for men. And I said, only for men, can't I join? No, I'm sorry, it's only for men. 
and it was to teach you how to look after your car and, you know, change your spark plugs and change wheels and that sort of thing. So I went to the board of the school and said, I want to join your night class on motor mechanics and I have been refused. Why can't I join? And they gave me permission. So I was the first woman to go to the night classes at the Wanger as a tech. They'd encourage me to do it. That brother made me a beautiful little baby's cot and a Dutch doll to go in and I never ever played with it. It was a doll, what I want dolls for. Bruce, my eldest brother, the one that did the ECG and the um, heart monitor, he was within um, just a matter of months of his 100th birthday. Hugh got Parkinson's disease. He died in his late 80s. And my brother Cameron died last year. At, uh, oh, no, it had to be more than last year now. I think he was 93 when he died. And what I was made 95. Yeah. Yeah. And yet both my parents died in their 70s. been interested in history as I mean just my own life tells you this and um, the historical society used to meet in the Wodonga library Um, and I went along to a meeting and I got hooked I suppose. And what I mean you've contributed a lot to the historical society but I'm interested to know is what it's done for you like why why did you stay a member for so long? Well, I gave up because physically I was past bending and shoving in drawers and all sorts of things like that. As a, as a member of the Historical Society, what's the best project that you, that you contributed in terms of the history of... Wodonga, something you compiled. Keeping its records. Yeah. Mostly paper and photographic, but then we got somebody who did the photos. Um, but I ended up by putting photos in with copy. And what about your OAM that you got? Was that a proud moment? Oh, yes, most unexpected. But all that is in these files. I've got everybody's submission. The famous Harold Mayer. Yeah. Well, Harold and Pam were friends. He hated driving and Pam had driving where he had to go. They weren't a twosome in the romantic, mm. but they were twosome because they both lost their partners and they were both lonely people. So they were friends? And Pam was a friend of mine. Pam and Les were friends of mine. Mm. And it um, on a Saturday night, Bob, Bob and Betty McLean, Jean and Chas Woodler, Pam Stone and Harold Mayer would go and have dinner at the commercial club. When Chaz died, I'd keep going, yeah. And aren't you proud of the ABC when you see its presentations? I am. Are you proud? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm. And the uh, it worries me that there is such a move to get rid of it. You know, in Queensland, you cannot buy a newspaper that doesn't belong to the 
Murdoch Bruce, the whole of Queensland did not have our children. I would have been fined if I did not have my children vaccinated. And that was German measles and whooping cough and um, there were four things. And they've still got their infant welfare books that tell their vaccinations that they were vaccinated all those years ago. And you were fined if you did not have polio, was another one. When I was a kid, it was polio. And I wasn't allowed to go out the front gate. You know the stretches you see the ambulances now have the wheels that pop up when or fold to sort of thing. But people used to have to wheel their polio kids in what was virtually an elongated stretcher on wheels. Oh, they were just so hard to manage, and it was it was a terrible thing. Um, and we got two vaccines within pretty close proximity to each other. One was an injection, the other was the sulk. So he had one or the other. Um, I wasn't allowed to play with the kids out in the street. Terrible. And then there was diphtheria. I remember my brother and I both getting diphtheria together, my brother Hugh. And my mum thought, how's she going to manage? She's got two other boys and a husband who's bedridden and a fair amount of time. And um, I, I think back on how did she manage you now when she had the diphtheria, when we, here and I, had diphtheria, she got a very sore throat and it was grey. And we all had paint boxes about that big with little squares and each had a different colour and she had a paintbrush. She got our paintbrushes and she got kerosene and she painted the back of her mouth with kerosene to try and kill the diphtheria and she never had a day in bed. Wow. I mean, they were tough. But polio was sad to watch people wheeling their kids and a lot of them were big kids, you know, young adults with polio. Oh, it was a vicious thing. And then it's not very many years ago that it came back in those same people. So your first question is, you might not recognise it, but people would see you as a woman ahead of your time. You were balancing work, motherhood, um, all this interesting travel and community work and speaking out for what you saw as unfairness. What do you think compared to when you were starting out as a young woman, what do you think are the difficulties facing young women today? feeling that they're not equal with men, and they are. And my brothers proved that. Our relationship was never a superior, you you do this because I'm the boss. It was always an equal. And yet, I'd, looking back now a long, long way, I would say that my father controlled my mother but I wasn't aware of it then. That was the normal thing. Chaz asked my father his permission to marry me. What a nonsense. So I say what they said to me, there's no such word as can't. And if you say can't, you say, how can I overcome this? And you do it, you find a way of doing doing that. You, um, you control your life, but you've got to consider the other people in your life. Any failure 
is the first step in succeeding. That's the other thing you've got to consider. I made an awful mess of that. I made a mistake. I made a million mistakes on that one. Okay, you learn from that and you don't make any of those mistakes again. The failure is your first step to success. And I wouldn't be the first to say that because that's the way I was brought up. It's something that it um, is part of part of me.